0: 1960, Parkview Street, Milton, Queensland A man is found dead in his flat And his death is deemed to be from natural causes Three years later A man charged with four counts of murder Would confess to his killing This is the story of William MacDonald The Sydney Mutilator I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, tonight not only do I have a gruesome story from back in the day... But it's also the second birthday show for the island. Woohoo! I think it's a few weeks late, but at the end of the show, we will have a few birthday wishes to play. So uh, stay tuned for that. Okay, tonight is a story about a guy that would become one of Australia's first serial killers. And he would brutally mutilate his last four victims. So first up, let's find out a bit about William McDonald. He was born Alan Ginsberg on the 17th of June, 1924 in Liverpool, England. The middle child, and we know what that means, being a middle child. He's, he was always going to be a little bit different. Anyway, in 1943, with the Second World War well underway, Ginsberg joins up with the army and is sent to the Lancashire Fus- Fusiliers. Hmm. Now, while in an air raid shelter during a German air raid, Ginsburg is raped by a corporal. And although at the time it traumatised him, later on he realised that he actually enjoyed it. He didn't so much enjoy the surprise or non-consens- non-consensual aspects of that encounter, more he realised that he had homosexual persuasions. Ginsburg would be discharged from the army in 1947, and then he would go and see a psychiatrist. He claimed that he was constantly being ridiculed because of his obvious homosexuality, and that this was causing illusions and strange noises in his head. He was committed to a psych ward for about three months or so, where he was given electroconvulsive therapy, you know, that shock treatment uh, for his schizophrenia. Well, that didn't do shit, so he thought that if he couldn't change his life, he would change countries. He moved to Canada in 1949, but then immigrated to Australia in 1955, where he changed his name to William MacDonald. Not long after getting to Australia, he got into a bit of strife after touching a detective's penis while in a public toilet in Adelaide. (laughs) Touching a dick on the dick. How would you be, eh, gathering up all that courage to go grab someone on the donger and the guy you choose happens to be a copper? <laughs> Fuck's sake. Anyway, he gets charged with indecent assault, gets convicted and placed on a two-year good behaviour bond. He moved to Victoria and he gets a job on a construction site. But again, he starts getting ridiculed about his blatant gayness. The blokes working on the site beat him up one day, calling him a porfter. McDonald doesn't get mad, he gets even. He slashes the tyres of all their push bikes. He then moves into state again, probably a good idea. The poor bloke, and, and from what I can see, he never had any real friends. Well, he moves up to Queensland where he would often lurk around known homosexual hangouts such as toilet blocks and bars, hoping to meet other gay men to have sexual encounters. Now, we must remember that back in the late 50s and 60s in Australia, and for that matter many other places in the world, homosexuality was shunned upon by the general public, if not illegal. Now, from what I've read, Macdonald was constantly bullied for being gay wherever he worked, either directly or by being talked about behind his back. Now, for someone with mental issues, all this did was make him more anxious and more paranoid. There was a rage building up inside him that would soon be unleashed. In 1960, while walking near Roma Street Railway Station in Brisbane... McDonald meets 55-year-old Amos Hurst and invites him for a drink at a local pub. They get pretty pissed and grab a few takeaways before going back to Amos's flat in Parkview Street, Milton. Nowadays, Parkview Street is more of a business district, but back then it had many run-down apartment blocks. When they get to Amos's place, they continue drinking until Amos passes out. With the rage inside Macdonald having been built up for so long, he started to choke Amos who was so drunk he couldn't fight back. Soon, blood ran from Amos's nose and mouth as Macdonald had strangled the life out of him. Macdonald quickly cleaned up some of the blood, undressed the now dead Amos and put him to bed. Macdonald then took off back to his own place. For the next few days, McDonald scanned all the newspapers looking for anything to do with the murder of Amos Hurst. To his surprise, days later, he would read an obituary for Amos and it said he had passed away from heart failure. The aut- autopsy did find that there were marks on Amos's neck and that he may have been in a fight. But as Amos was just a drunken darrow, the police closed the case. Now, before I go on, the term dero is a term that was used back in the day for an alcoholic person that was derelict, hence the Aussie slang dero. We always shorten words and put an O or, or an E on the end. Now, these guys used used to hang around parks, drank metho or cheap booze, and were usually homeless. More often than not, they were formerly professional people that had fallen from grace, that just had mental illness, became alcoholics and ended up on the streets. Now, for the whole time since killing Amos, Macdonald had been shitting himself expecting the cops to come through his front door any time, even though he was sure no one had seen him leave Amos's place. Amos still had the urge to kill and almost did kill again in Brisbane. He had bought a knife that he could easily conceal and met another drunk down and out guy. While drinking cheap booze in a park, McDonald started to get the delusion that his drinking partner was the corporal that had raped him all those years ago. When his drinking buddy passed out, McDonald straddled his chest and was about to stab him with his knife when the urge to kill subsided and he got up and walked away. McDonald then moved down to Sydney, and found a place to live in the eastern suburbs. He got a job at what was then known as the Postmaster General, or the PMG, under the alias of Alan Brennan. Soon he would get around the public toilets and parks that were known as hookup places for Sydney's homosexual community. He would become well-known in these circles, but he still lacked any real friends. He only had fuck buddies. On Saturday the third of june nineteen sixty one, McDonald starts talking to an extremely unkempt, homeless alcoholic person with body odor issues, or as they said back in the day, a Darrow, I think in the US you call them winos, I don't know really if it's politically correct or not, but back in the day, McDonald sits down on a bench in Green Park with forty five year old Alfred Greenfield. Now, Green Park, by the way, is across the road from St Vinnie's Hospital in Darlow, or Darlinghurst, Sydney. It's the one with the little bandstand in the middle, which is now a cafe. So, McDonald offers Alfie a drink, and then entices him down to the Domain Baths with the promise of more beer. When they reach the Domain Baths, they continue drinking. McDonald and Alfie then walk towards a secluded area, and they drink on. Eventually Alfie falls asleep and MacDonald feels the urge to kill rising up inside of him. MacDonald puts on a plastic raincoat he'd brought with him, stabs Alfie 30 times around the head and neck and then pulls off Alfie's shoes and trousers. MacDonald then grabs Alfie's ball sack and penis then with his knife he cuts them off. MacDonald then wraps the bloodied knife in his raincoat walks down to the harbour and throws Alfie's dick and balls into the harbour. He washes his hands and walks home. Newspaper reports of the day say that around 7pm on Sunday, two men walked into CIB headquarters to report seeing a body under the domain bars. It didn't take long for police to identify Alfie from his tattoos. Skin divers, while looking in the harbour for the murder weapon, were able to locate Alfie's dick and balls. Police interviewed several people and found that his last known sighting was on the Saturday night at the Darlinghurst Hotel. Now, they did get word that Alfie may have been with a man late Saturday night and they knew that the man they wanted to talk to frequented the area. They also thought it may have been a jealous lady friend that decided to cut off his nuts in some sort of rage. It wouldn't be long before McDonald would strike again. As he read about the killer that was dubbed by the media as the Sydney Mutilator, the rage inside McDonald had subsided along with the police investigation and the news stories. On Monday, the 20th of November 1961, McDonald goes into the Mick Simmons Sports Store at Haymarket in Sydney and buys a six inch knife which he tells the salesman he wants for fishing. Later that night, while walking down South Dowling Street at Moore Park, MacDonald sees 55-year-old Ernest Cobbin drunk and staggering towards him. As before, MacDonald lures Ernest to a secluded place, this time the public toilets at Moore Park, where he sits and drinks with his victim. MacDonald gets up, puts on his raincoat and then thrusts his brand new knife into Ernest's neck, severing his jugular vein. The next several blows of the knife were in an uppercut fashion, with blood spurting everywhere all over the walls and floor and covering MacDonald's plastic raincoat. Ernest suffered over 40 stab wounds. Once Ernest was well and truly dead, MacDonald pulled down his pants and again he cut off his dick and balls, this time putting them in a plastic bag. He then took off his blood-soaked raincoat, wiped the beer bottles clean of fingerprints, wrapped up his knife, put the dick, balls, raincoat and knife into his other bag and calmly walked off. That night, after cleaning up Ernest's man parts, MacDonald went to sleep with them. The next day, he took everything, weighted it down and threw it off the harbour bridge. Then he went to work as normal at the Postmaster General, sorting letters. So, police and media realised they have a psycho on their hands. The problem was they had fuck all clues and the victims were, as I said before, derelicts. And as we know, those that find themselves at the ass end of society tend to not get as much attention when it comes to investigating their deaths. Although in this case, the public were now very fucking scared and wanted some answers and the perpetrator caught. Still, Police believed the perpetrator was a woman masquerading as a man because of the mutilation of the genitals and they also believed that the maniac was sure to strike again. So, police started to hang out at toilets, wine bars and pubs that these derelict people were known to hang out at. I think police hang out at these places anyway all the time. They even disguise themselves as vagrants in hope of catching the mutilator. And strike again, Macdonald did. On the 31st of March 1962, the rage inside Macdonald was burning and again he bought a knife from Mick Simmons in Sydney. Later that night, he was drinking at the Oxford Hotel in Darlow when at closing time of 10pm, he followed out a Frank McLean who was holding a bottle of wine. Macdonald caught up with Frank and started to chat. Then he suggested they turn into Little Burke Street to have a drink. As they turned into the small laneway, MacDonald plunged his knife into the neck of the startled but drunk Frank McLean. Frank fell to the ground, but MacDonald was disturbed by the sound of an approaching family. MacDonald quickly hid in the bushes as the family attended to the blood-splattered person they saw in agony on the ground. But then The family all ran off to call the police, leaving Frank alone. MacDonald then took his chance and pulled down Frank's pants, cut off his dick and balls, put them in a plastic bag and then ran off, leaving Frank to bleed out before the family returned after calling the police. Police and ambulance crews got to Frank but were unable to save him. Again the next day, MacDonald threw his bag with Frank's genitals in it over the harbour bridge. On the 8th of April 1962, the Sydney Morning Herald ran an article on the mutilator murders. They reported that at this stage, police had a map that showed the three crime scenes in what they called the Murder Mile. If you look at the locations from the Domain Baths, which is the uh, Boy Charlton pool now, at the first killing to the toilets at Moore Park, the third killing is almost in the middle at Little Burke Street. It's two miles actually, but the murder miles sounds better than the murder two miles. So, now at this stage, police are starting to doubt it's a woman carrying out the attacks, and they check all ships that were in the harbour at the time of the three murders, but that's not going anywhere. They see that the time difference between the first and second murder of five and a half months has decreased to just over four months between the second and third murder. This suggests to them that the killer's compulsion is getting stronger and that he took extreme risks during the third murder as it was done in an area that has plenty of foot traffic. Psychiatrists believe the mutilator to be a little antisocial, but most of the time he appears normal and that he is a Jekyll and Hyde type and he could be from any socioeconomic part of society. They did go on to say that the killer is a psychopathic homosexual sadist. So, I guess they weren't that far off. Also, they mentioned that the killer was careful not to leave any evidence such as fingerprints or even footprints behind when leaving the crime scenes. On the 19th of April... The government increased the reward for information leading to the arrest of the mutilator from £2,000 to £5,000. The Premier, Mr Heffron, also added that the Governor Lieutenant General, Sir Eric Woodward, would also be advised to give a free pardon to any accomplice other than the killer himself if they gave information leading to an arrest. At this stage, Macdonald, working at the Postmaster General under the alias Alan Brennan, lost his job. He decided to go into business and purchased a mixed business sort of like deli or milk bar in Concord, and that's about 20 minutes drive west of Sydney. He lived in a room above the shop. On the 22nd of July 1962, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that police believed that the mutilator was planning his next murder and they were sort of correct. In actual fact, the fourth murder had already happened six weeks before and just over two months after the third killing. Now, this is where things get really interesting. Macdonald, as I just told you, had been working and had purchased the mixed business in the name of Alan Brennan. On the 6th of June 1962, Macdonald was drinking at the Wine Palace in Pitt Street, Sydney. Now here he met the just released from prison and petty thief, 42-year-old James Hackett. Macdonald invited Hackett back to his place in Concord to continue drinking. They caught a cab there and yes, they kept drinking until Hackett passed out. MacDonald grabbed a boning knife from his shop downstairs and plunged it into Hackett's neck. Hackett woke up from his drunken slumber and was able to shield the next blow which diverted the knife, cutting MacDonald's own hand. He was unable to dodge the next blow as MacDonald got him right in the heart, killing Hackett pretty much instantly. MacDonald then continued stabbing Hackett then got up and tried to cut off his dick and balls as he'd done before but the boning knife had become blunt from all the stabbing and he eventually gave up and fell asleep on the blood-soaked floor. When he woke up he freaked out and realised there was so much blood soaked into the floor and walls that it was dripping downstairs into his shop. He cleaned up as best he could and then presented himself to Concord Hospital where he got his badly cut hands stitched up, telling doctors he'd cut himself in his shop. On his return to the shop residence, he thought about the amount of blood and the fact that he took a cab back with Hackett the night before. If Hackett was reported missing, they could easily track his last movements back to the shop and no amount of cleaning would disguise the blood stains everywhere. So Macdonald took Hackett's body downstairs and dragged him under the house and stuffed him in one of the corners. A few days later, Macdonald fled to Brisbane, dyed his hair, grew a moustache and went under the name of Alan Macdonald. Now I guess that's a mixture of William Macdonald, his real name, and Alan Brennan, the name he was working under in Sydney. Now he was constantly reading the Sydney papers expecting to read about the murderer James Hackett and how they were looking for Alan Brennan for questioning. But nothing, not a sausage about any of the murders or missing people. A few days after McDonald fled to Brisbane, people were turning up to his shop looking to pick up their dry cleaning as he'd been an agent for one of the dry cleaning companies. They and the neighbours just assumed the shop owner had left town. After a month or so, A bad smell was coming from the shop and the health department and then the police were called in. Eventually, they found a rotting corpse under the building and they assumed that it was the missing Alan Brennan. But as we know him, William MacDonald. Even after an autopsy, police believed that Brennan had crawled under the building and had been electrocuted. Case closed. Crawled under the building naked. (laughs) Anyway, Now, get this, his old workmates at the PMG, the Postmaster General, read his death notice and they had attended a small memorial for him and the body of James Hackett was buried under the name of Alan Brennan. Now, MacDonald was unaware of all this and he ended up going to New Zealand for a few months, but the urge to kill started to rise up inside. For some, reason he needed to kill but back in Sydney so six months or so after the burial of the misidentified Alan Brennan McDonald returned to Sydney now remember McDonald doesn't know that the body of Hackett has been mistaken for his alias Brennan so when one of his former workmates that attended his memorial service bumped into him down George Street things got a little bit awkward shocked was john mccarthy that he was seeing a dead man walking and so he invited MacDonald for a drink here mccarthy told MacDonald that he thought he was dead as police had found his body under his shop and then he and his workmates had attended his memorial service mccarthy then said so if it wasn't you under the shop who was it and why did you leave town McDonald quickly realised what was going on and jumped up and he fled to Melbourne. McCarthy went to police with the story and at first they didn't believe him. They just thought he was drunk. McCarthy then rang a journalist and told him the story. Police were then forced to exhume the body of what they thought was Brennan and after a second autopsy where they now noticed stab marks everywhere, fingerprints would identify the corpse as petty thief James Hackett. The police commissioner at the time was not impressed. He was not impressed at all that the original autopsy had missed such blatantly obvious injuries on the body as stab wounds. But he, it was quite decomposed so uh, when they did the autopsy, so you got to give him a little bit of slack. So now police were on the lookout for this walking corpse, Brennan. AKA McDonald in a first police used this new technology called an identikit to create a sketch of McDonald who was now working at the railways in Melbourne it was in all the newspapers and one day as McDonald turned up to collect his pay he was nabbed by police after his workmates had identified him after being interviewed by Victorian police McDonald was extradited to New South Wales While in custody, MacDonald not only confessed to the four Sydney murders, but he also confessed to the one in Brisbane, Amos Hurst, who was thought to have died of heart failure. They dug up poor old Amos, but they found his neck bones were too disintegrated to 100% say he was strangled. MacDonald would be charged with the four New South Wales murders, and he pleaded not guilty on mental illness grounds. Psychiatrists confirmed that Macdonald was mentally ill and both the prosecutors and defence agreed. However, it was up to the jury to find him not guilty, but they took only a couple of hours to find him guilty on four counts of murder. Macdonald was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences with the strong recommendation that he never be released. He kept to himself inside and had no friends. Eventually, as he got older... He realised that he didn't want to be released. He preferred to stay in jail. He felt that he would not last five minutes on the outside. Macdonald died May 12, 2015, aged 90, while still in prison. At the time of his death, Macdonald was the oldest and longest-serving prisoner in custody in New South Wales. So, Islanders, what a story. First, he murders a guy and the police think it's death by natural causes. Then after killing four people in New South Wales, the last victim they think is him, and he's only found out once he goes back to Sydney. No one suspected him otherwise. All he had to do was stay away from Sydney. It was unlucky as well being the first person in Australia to have a sketch made from the new identikit process, which is in use still today, but it's probably on a computer now. How would you be running into your dead mate from work? Now, we're lucky that McCarthy guy had enough brains to work out that if McDonald was still alive, then who did they bury? And he contacted police. Look, it's not that the cops cared. McCarthy still had to go to a journalist to get the cops to take him seriously. Now, over the years, McDonald did say it was not him that committed the murders and that it was his alter ego that did. Now, I think that's fair enough. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic early on, and it was that person inside that got the rage to kill. Now, I'd like to thank Paul B. Kidd and his book, Never To Be Released. I read it, and it not only details William McDonald's story, but several other crims that as by the book title says, never to be released. Paul also has a radio show on 2GB and affiliates. Look, Google that if you're interested as he is an amazing author. And Paul, if you are listening, send me an email as I'd love to sit down and have a chat. It's cambo at Island.com. So Islanders, this is the second birthday episode and I'd like to thank all of you for your support over the last two years honestly if i didn't get the feedback and support i wouldn't be doing it it's you the island listeners that makes this so worthwhile there will be a few birthday messages at the end of the show so listen to them and there is one blooper now i never do bloopers but i put one blooper in for the birthday show and with that, let's get to the shout-outs for Patreon and PayPal. So thank you so much to Donna Giles who's joined today on the Silverjet Debt Chair level. Cheers, Donna. And as you know, True Crime Island is an ad-free podcast, totally listener-supported, as I know you don't like ads, and I don't want them here as well. So you can join the island Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash Island, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can help out the island. Thank you to all past and present Patreon Islanders. You are very much appreciated. Alternatively, you can do a one-off donation via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Island. If you want merch, you can go to truecrimeisland.threadless.com where you can buy t-shirts, hoodies, mugs of rage and even beach towels and all that stuff. But don't order the black mugs as they suck and I can't turn off the black mug button on the side. Sarah, if you're listening, I had to send you a white one for your Patreon award. Also, Catherine, I sent you an email on what shirt you'd like so I can send it to you for your Patreon award. For keyrings, lapel pins and koozies or stickers, email me cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can sort you out depending on where you live and what you'd like so we work out how much but you can also help the island by rating and reviewing and of course spreading the word so if you have a friend or relo that doesn't know about podcasts grab their phone and hook them up the island's on Facebook funny that. please join the closed group as our lovely mod Sanger Jason Erica or Susan will let you in I might also go to at True Crime Island on Twitter and Instagram. We haven't got Snapchat, but maybe I need to. Again, thank you, Islanders, for all your support over the last two years. Happy birthday. Now, we'll have promos next week. This week, we're going to have the birthday messages and a blooper. Well, that's about it for tonight. and <laughs> Lots of love to Maggie James. So, this has been Cambo. And you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boomfuckalunga.
1: Hey, Cambo, it's Tara.
0: And Barney from Bloody Murder Podcast.
1: We would like to wish you and True Crime Island a happy second birthday.
0: Yeah, happy birthday, and I'm sure there'll be many more to come.
1: We love you. Boomfuckalunga. Hard. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Islanders. This is Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss. I listen to a whole lot of podcasts, and often I'll hear some detail or some idea, and I'll go off down the rabbit hole researching online or trying to figure out what is that or what does that mean camo can claim the unique honor at least in my memory of sending me researching a single word because i consider myself fairly articulate and here's this word that i don't even understand and what the fuck is boom fuck along anyway and what am i supposed to can i use that in a sentence can i not let the kids learn use it at school what is this well i think as islanders know by now It's not a word you can learn about by reading. It's really one you just have to experience. Campbell, thank you so much and congratulations on two years. That's no small feat. And until next time, boomfuckalanga. Hey, this is Sarah from Good Nightmare. Just wishing Cambo a happy birthday for True Crime Island. Boomfuckalanga. Hey, everybody. This is Jessica from the Asian Madness podcast. And I am here to wish Cambo, True Crime Island, a happy, happy birthday. We all know how awesome and how ragey Cambo can be. And this is not going to sound very ragey, but here goes. Bon fuckalanga. Happy birthday, True Crime Island! Hi, this is Mina from True Crime Finland. I wanted to wish Campbell and the island a happy second birthday. Don't forget to grab your favorite beer and pull up a deck chair to celebrate. Or if it's too cold, like here in Finland, just enjoy your beer in the sauna like we Finns do. Boom fakalunga.
0: MacDonald then took his chance and pulled down Frank's pants, cut off his dick and balls. Put them in a plastic bag and then ran off, leaving Frank to Frank flank to bleed out, bleed out, leaving Frank to bleed, leaving Frank to bleed out. Fuck.